Colborn, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversations. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. And we couldn't be more excited that it's early March 2015. Spring training underway. We'll be talking Royals baseball with you every single day here soon on Clubhouse Conversation. It's Davo on the place where we also catch up weekly year-round with your favorite current and former Royals players. And today it's Jim Colborn, a guy that pitched for the Royals from 1977 to 1978 and threw one of four no-hitters in Royals history back in 1977. Colburn, a guy, though, that you may not realize had a very, very good major league career besides that. You always hear about the no-hitter, as you should, but he won 18 games for the Royals in 1977. Colburn, go back a few years, was an all-star with the Brewers in 1973, was the first 20-game winner in Milwaukee Brewer history there for the Brewer crew. Had a very nice major league career. Ten seasons he spent at the big league level with the Cubs, the Brewers, the Royals, and the Mariners. Had a ERA of 3.80 lifetime. Had a season where he threw over 300 innings, several years over 200 innings. So a very, very good major league pitcher was Colborn. But even more than that, what a fascinating career in baseball he's had since retiring. 25-plus years as a major league pitching coach, minor league manager, Pacific Rim scout, on and on. He even appeared in my favorite movie of all time. Well, maybe my favorite movie. Uh, For Love of the Game, that and Sugar, another baseball movie. If you've never seen Sugar, you must see that. But those two are my favorites. He even had an appearance in For Love of the Game. We'll talk about that. let's, Let's just dig right in. He's on the phone right now, Jim Colburn. First of all, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and kind of update everybody on what you're doing these days. I work for the Texas Rangers, and uh, I help them with their scouting in Asia, in, um, in the Pacific Rim. Very cool. So you make some trips to Surprise every now and again, I'm assuming, right? Yes, I do. I'll, I was there recently. I'll be headed back in a week or so. What's it like over there? You get to make a, you know do a lot of traveling, obviously. Kind of talk about what exactly do you do with that role? Because you always hear about the Pacific Rim thing, but kind of talk more about that. Uh, it's mostly a vacation. <laughs> um, well, although you, when you get there and you have a chance to see a college or a high school practice during the day and then uh, get on a train or a bus and go to a, a professional game in the evening, uh, your days get, it, it kind of eliminates the opportunity to sightsee. So uh, you end up being a baseball scout like you would be here in the U.S. The the uh, 13-hour trips are kind of intriguing at times until you've done them a, a few dozen times, but... <laughs> Overall, I'm not complaining. Are you, which countries are you mainly in then? Well, of course, you know Japan has produced some uh, some quality professional players that come here after they've had eight or ten years of their career there. 
so you scout the professionals there. And the same has just started with the Koreans. They've been uh, with the pitcher from the Dodgers, Ryu, and there have been a couple position players that have been uh, coming out. So the, pro- the professional players in Korea are also of interest. The, on the amateur side, there are good players in, in Korea, Taiwan, and in Japan, but so far there haven't been any of the top quality amateurs from Japan come to the U.S. So um, that's what you scout, both professional and amateur. Do you see the uh, Japanese amateurs happening one day soon? Um, no. <laughs> uh, there have been some pretty uh, full-court presses put on uh, some of these boys over there, and and they're, they're um, cultural attention to uh, their own culture is, is very strong, so it doesn't take much for them to feel a responsibility to stay there. And uh, the, the uh, I guess you'd call it uh, a sense for independence that we might have, a little more so than the Japanese, uh, does not overrule. And so they tend to stay there playing the in the uh, the Japanese professional league. That makes sense. Now, di- didn't you see uh, Shinsu Chu in, in Korea back in the day? Yeah, I was uh, instrumental in signing him, yes. So he must have been can't miss, I'm sure, by then? Uh, strangely, he was scouted by everyone to be a pitcher. And I had had a chance to see some of his high school practices, and I've heard... I had heard about some of his monumental home runs that no American scout had seen and uh, from reliable sources. So I knew that he had off-the-charts power. And then I took my, my supervisor, a man named Roger Youngward, to see a practice, and he hit a home run there that uh, they, 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 they did their practices on a soccer field with the lengthwise being right field. Well, along the left field side were classrooms that they had netting uh, hanging down from the roof to protect the windows. And they didn't have any in the right field building because it was so far. And he hit one in this tryout that broke a window on the third floor. And I don't know how I explain the distance i guess it'd be it'd be like hitting one clear out of uh kaufman stadium something like that uh and i just thought to myself that's a million dollar swing right there because my supervisor saw it i looked at his face and he tried to keep a stoic look to him but i could tell he was excited (laughs) that's a great story and and wow you, you guys were right about him um, yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, too, you've been a pitching coach and you've managed and done a lot of other things, but I'm excited about 1998 or so. My all-time favorite movie for Love of the Game was being filmed, and uh, you ended up being in the movie as third base coach of the Tigers. So how did you get cast in that role in the first place? They wanted a very handsome guy to do <laughs> the body double for Kevin Costner in the love scenes. <laughs> and... Um, I guess I, I was just the, the first guy they thought of. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. 
But then I got there, and he said, no, I'll do my own scenes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, Kelly Preston, who wouldn't? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I know. Uh, no, there was a mutual friend that introduced me to Kevin at one point, and out of the blue, I got a call and um, to be the third base coach. And I went back to New York, and I assumed that, you know, somehow they'd pick up the, the costs, and I asked, so who, where do I put my receipt? Who do I send my receipts to for the airplane in the hotel? And they hemmed and hawed and said, "No, uh, that's not the way it works." And but we'll check with Kevin, and he ended up paying for them. And then I got on the set, and all these there are literally dozens of actors that pay and stay in little flea bag hotels just for a chance to maybe get on scene and I just didn't understand all that and so my naivete uh, kind of got me a hotel and a plane flight and um, and just sat around and saw the, the world of movies for a while it was very interesting the, the, how about the uh, the end product did you like that movie as much as I did yes I you know I did even even though I was prejudiced against it because I was in it, um, <laughs> I did end up liking the movie. Although when I went to see it in the ho- in the uh, movie theater, it was just my wife and I and another couple, and we were the only people in there to see it. Huh? Did you like the clear the mechanism thing, the the pitching? You yeah, know? actually, um, th- that's sort of a technique that. Uh, as a pitching coach, I've used in conjunction with uh, sports psychologists or performance coaches, and uh, something similar to that over the years, and uh, it's pretty accurate. Yeah, they, there was just one scene, and typically we'd s- sit around and play cards with some of the other uh, Detroit Tigers, and uh, all of a sudden there was we were. We were down at USC. Most of it was filmed in Yankee Stadium, and then we went to USC, and they were filming stuff, and all of a sudden my name was hollered out and said, report to the bullpen, and I went over there, and they had this scene where they wanted him to be coming back from an injury, and they said, show us what you'd do as a real pitching coach. So I just stood there and watched him, and he said something like, I can't feel it. And I said, well, use the seams. And he yells back, well, I am, I am. And that was done off camera, and the director said, all right, let's take this. And they did one take, maybe two, and that's it. And it made it into the the movie. But you can't believe how many scenes are shot and reshot and never make it into the movie. And this was done real quickly in in the span of about five minutes. That's really cool. Well, one other question before you before we go way back is: I read you were uh, doing some adult baseball stuff there in the L.A. area uh, with a couple of guys, including former Royals player Brent Cookson. What's he doing these days? Uh, <laughs> Brent has a uh, what they call a travel team, and he coaches these boys. And uh, anymore, that seems to be the way that not only uh, well certainly here in Southern California, but I think all over the country. Uh, I think in the past we've used high schools as a training ground, but anymore uh, it seems like 
parents are sending their kids into travel teams, not just baseball, but all of the sports, and with hopes of getting college scholarships or uh, being looked at by professionals. So he's got one of those going around here. Very cool. Well, let's go all the way back and and start from the beginning for you then. So you went to <laughs> Santa Paula High School there in California, and then you went to Whittier College. So did you have pro baseball aspirations then, like a freshman in college? You go to college at Whittier. Did you actually believe you had a chance to play someday? Uh, well, I'll tell you two stories. I think when I was in eighth grade, the I went to a school that had 72 students, and it was called MUPU, M-U-P-U. And the, uh, the teacher was actually our Little League coach, too. He was revered by all of us, and his teams always won, and... Uh, he ended up being a teacher at our little grade school. And he said, how many of you would like to be major league players? Well, myself and Howard Coppinger raised our hands. <laughs> we were the only ones. And he said, well, you never will. Just forget about that. You study and do something else because there's just too much competition and there's too long of a road to follow. And so I sheepishly put my hand down. But in the back of my mind, I said, I'll show you. <laughs> and, uh, and not that I thought that that was going to be my dream, but it was by far and away the, the most fun thing that I thought about doing in my life. I never really thought it was a, a possibility. So later in college, um, uh, mostly we just were having fun playing baseball and uh, we had a great team, and a scout, his name was Gordon Goldsberry, came to me after a game once and said, hey, you got a pretty good arm. You ever think about playing pro ball? And I probably said something I shouldn't have, knowing now as a scout what you want to hear from players. And I, I said to him, well, I'd, I'd like to, but I never thought I was good enough. <laughs> and I was just, actually, I think I was just having false humility because uh, the truth was, if I'd answered correctly, I said, yes, that's all I think about. I'd love to have the opportunity. But I said that, and I may have turned him off. And uh, eventually I had to call a another coach in our league and ask him, hey, you know, I think I this is after the draft and after I graduated. And I asked him, do you think I could just get a tryout and sign for salary and play this summer as a just for salary and he sent a scout over and and he watched me and then uh arranged to, he watched me throw to our first baseman and the first baseman was catching me with his first base glove and and as the ball would come in he'd go whoa ow oh that hurt wow did you see that and trying to influence the scout well i'm sure the scout knew exactly what he was seeing and it was a joke to him, but he set up a game the following weekend, and I pitched in. I pitched five innings in that, and after that, he said, "Okay, we'll sign you. I'm going to offer you $400 bonus." <laughs> so, so I, I said, "Okay, I'll take it." Yeah, don't spend it all at once, right? <laughs> um, no, in those days, it would be hard to spend it all at once. Oh, really? I think I could buy a stereo for $75 and probably when I when I went off to play I was a, my roommate 
and I bought a car that we paid, uh, what did we pay? We bought it for $200, and when he left, the next uh, after that summer ended, I paid him $75 for his half. So I had a I was I had a car for $175. Wow. You know, forget it. This was back in the 1800s, remember? <laughs> yeah. Long time ago, right? Yeah. Now, so what's the deal with Scotland then? So I read somewhere that you got your masters in Scotland in Edinburgh and you were playing basketball and baseball. Is, is that <laughs> is that is that true and is that before you started pro ball? What's the story on that? Uh Let's see, the timing was, yeah, it was true, very true. Um, Yeah, at that time, uh, along that theme of did I think I could be a professional player was the reality that I probably wasn't or couldn't. And I'd played that one year. That was in Lodi, Lodi, California. It's it's kind of a uh, grape-growing area, and they have wines and stuff there now. And... I played one year, and then the Rotary, the local Rotary Club in Santa Paula, where I went to high school, nominated me to um, uh, to what they call a uh, Rotary International Fellowship, and and I ended up winning it, and so I was to go my second year, and. Uh, I told the the Cubs about it, and they said, oh, they said, okay, come. They had asked me to come to instructional league and stuff, and I said I had this scholarship, and uh, and I even missed part of the following spring. But um, so I went over there and tried to study, uh, but they didn't have the courses that that I had um, that I needed. Actually, I didn't get a, a master's degree, but. I was supposed to be studying for it, but they, anyhow, uh, instead of baseball, we, I, I had, I, was, I lived in a place where the lady said I could have a, a shower, a bath once a week, huh. and that was Wednesday nights, and I ran into an American, and he said, why don't you come for the basketball team? I said, I can't, I've used up all my college eligibility in the States four years, and he said, it doesn't matter here. And besides, you get free showers after practice. <laughs> so that was the kicker, the free showers. So I joined the basketball team, and we ended up playing about 58 games and went all over the British Isles and um, and had a great team. And uh, that's really what I did in Scotland with my Rotary Foundation Fellowship. And baseball had I tried to give speeches and show them what my baseball glove was and stuff. But they had no idea what it was, and I'd pass my glove around, and they'd have it on their the wrong hand <laughs> while they were looking at it. So baseball was a far cry from Scotland, and I returned and went to the last part of spring training uh, with the AAA team had already broken and gone to Hawaii of all places, and I had to stay there in Arizona and train until they got back. I missed that trip, but also got married uh, just before that, and then joined them in Tacoma. So, very cool. That's that's what a what a ride. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned Lodi already. You were there in 1967 and 1968, and that's obviously not 
you know, a, a affiliated pro town anymore. What, what was it like pitching in Lodi? Um, <clears throat> honestly, at the time, if if kids now took it as seriously as as we took it, um, probably they'd get, have a stern talking to. But it seemed like we were just uh, having fun. I mean, I I had a little. Uh, 90 cc motorcycle that I drove to the park, and I'd pick up my friend, <clears throat> our second baseman on on the way, and we'd go play golf with. We'd hang clubs over the back of ourselves and go play golf in the morning, and then come back and get to the park. I remember having a drove on some gravel once and crashed and just skinned his leg up, and he couldn't play for a few days and. Another time we went, I went fishing and in a Jeep, and the Jeep tipped over, and I had to walk or hitchhike back to the park, and I was late. And the, when I came onto the field, the coach says, uh, how many fish you catch? I said, five. He says, that'll be a dollar for every fish. <laughs> and, you know, it was, <clears throat> you were just living life, and baseball was just a part of it, and not... Not uh, like the expectations today where the players train year-round and they're supposed to eat a certain diet. and uh, it, it's, it's kind of, and we had no coaches. There was no pitching coach. There was one manager for the team for both uh, position players and pitchers. And he, you know, passed on his knowledge. Uh, as he would, like I, I remember clearly one of the first things he said. We were in the first game I pitched was in Reno. <clears throat> we were in the shower and we got out. We were just getting out and he says, "Boys, look out now! That floor is slicker than owl shit. <laughs> you might fall down." <clears throat> so it's stuff like that that he passed on. You know, don't slip in the shower. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, so 1969, what a special year that was for you. You start off at AAA at Tacoma there for the Cubs. You end up throwing 146 innings, 2.28 ERA. That led the PCL. And then uh, the Cubs gave you two stints at the big league level, July and September. So take us back to that first call to the big leagues. How did you get the news you were first going to the big leagues? Uh, the manager was Rock, uh, was Whitey Lockman, <clears throat> and um, he called me in and had a big smile on his face, and you know he was clearly really happy for me. And he says, "Well, you're going to get called to the big leagues." And I didn't, I didn't jump up and down or anything. And he says, "Well, how do you feel? Aren't you happy?" I said, "Well," and I'd seen how they did it. It was a bunch of up and down, up and down. This player and that player. I said, "Yeah, I want to go. Am I going to stay?" And he, he, you know, he he didn't have the answer to that. So I was kind of hiding my excitement, but um, I was worried that it'd be that same elevator ride up and down like those guys. You know, they didn't get much of a chance that Leo DeRocher was who was waiting for you when you got to Chicago, and he was uh, a very impatient guy, and the team was supposed to win. So if you were part of the team, it wasn't development. It was... Um, you better produce or you're out of here. And and there's a big adjustment to the big leagues, and especially I'd never even seen a big league 
spring training camp or a big league game except in Dodger Stadium as a as a spectator and so it was a huge adjustment for me um and so sure enough I pitched the first game they it was the second game of a doubleheader I arrived on a Thursday I think and and Leo Leo was there as early in the morning in the clubhouse and he was there and Ernie Banks shook hands with me and his hand is so big it engulfed mine and his grip was so strong it felt like a vice and he said welcome to the big league son <laughs> with his booming voice and leo Droche had a booming voice and i was pretty much scared shitless <laughs> and leo says now you're the guy he says uh you better tell me where you hide it and i said what he says come on now you can tell me i gotta know in case the umpires say something so I can protect you. Hide what? Well, you're Vaseline. Where do you keep that? And I said, what? What are you talking about? He says, and then he kind of turned his over his shoulder and said to who, somebody in the clubhouse, isn't this the kid that has the spitter? And I said, no, I don't. I just throw a straight fastball. And, and he goes, oh, well, all right. And then I got to thinking there was another guy in our organization that did throw that that would have been a, a consideration to bring up, and he probably thought he was getting that guy. <laughs> and that that was the kind of player he wanted, was somebody who cheated a little bit and was a tough competitor. And I was some college kid that he hated, those kind of people. And uh, so it didn't, it didn't start on the right foot. And, and eventually... That my, I pitched that game that year up and down. The second year, they elected me as um, the uh, assistant player rep. Here I was, the second my second year. I'd been in the big leagues about two months, and I was all of a sudden the Cubs' assistant player rep. And you know, it was the likes of Ernie Banks and Glenn Beckert and Kessinger and. Ferguson Jenkins and guys like that that really were pretty established in baseball and all of a sudden the player rep got released and I became the Cubs player rep and Leo hated me for for that and he called me in one time and he says you know you look like one of Mr. Wrigley's lawyers getting on the bus with that briefcase <laughs> what the hell is that all about and I shit, I, I didn't know what to do i sure didn't want that but there i was thinking that was my responsibility and so that that was kind of uh what i had to face the first couple three years there with the cubs with leo derocha and eventually he the third year he sent me down and i think i spent most of the year in triple a came back in september again huh now here's a, a random question to uh, to dig up your brain here. You your first strikeout in the major leagues. The guy only had 32 major league at bats. Can you remember who that was? Was it Larry Heisel? No, it was Rich Berry. Rich Berry. Oh gosh. <laughs> Do you remember that well, now? <laughs> no, but on the other side of the coin, I think there's a lot of players that said. You know, you probably you hit your first home run off Jim Colburn. Do you remember who he was? And they probably say no. <laughs> but um, 
I sort of remember Rich Berry. Yeah, I think he'd been in AAA. And that was one of the things I asked Whitey Lockman when I first went there was, um, you know, what's it like? Do I have, he, and, you know, he tried, he said, well, there's some guys that w- that you've pitched against here in, in the, in AAA that'll be there. And the other ones there, you just keep pitching the same way, but if you make a mistake, they'll hit them. And, uh, Rich Berry, I think, was the guy that had been in AAA, so maybe that gave me some comfort. There you well, go. I didn't strike out too many guys. It's just, I'm surprised that I don't remember it. <laughs> well, it's been a long time ago. It's a, it's a random question. So, um, so then you head over to Milwaukee after that. That'd be a great place for you. 1972 to 1976. Let's start off by uh, you, you started off in the bullpen for the Brewers, and they put you in the rotation after that. Your first AL start, you threw a three-hitter versus the Angels. Do you remember that game at all? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I would just, no, I just remember stuff in general. That had to be in, uh, huh. Well, I remember one of the themes that I had, I feel like I had in my baseball career and probably in my life was <clears throat> that I felt I was never worthy <laughs> or I felt like I, I did my best when I felt like I was having to prove myself. And so that was part of that theme. And uh, I, uh, those guys were established, I guess, and um, I was trying to prove that I should be in the rotation. Um, I know that I think I had a decent record maybe seven and four or something like that the first year with them off and on and um <clears throat> the second spring uh the manage the manager said uh, you know he i there was something wrong and he said uh uh come with me and ride with me to the spring training game and i did and i says what's wrong and i said well you know i can be your one of your starting pitchers and he said well okay i know and you have confidence he said but unfortunately it's not your decision it's ours the only thing you can hope for is that you'll get the opportunity to prove our opinions wrong and uh so i started in the bullpen that year actually i started the first game of the the season and I, I got beat. I think I pitched four innings, four or five, against Baltimore, and then back to the bullpen, and didn't start until uh, uh, probably May 5th or something for real. And then I got, I got a chance and stuck in the bullpen, the rotation rotation after that. Yeah, you. you... Uh, that was that was the second year though. I'm jumping ahead <laughs> and ended up pitching uh, in all those innings. Yeah, well, yeah. Let's talk about that. 1973. You're the first ever 20 game winner for the Brewers. You're an All Star that year. You had four five hitters. You had two three hitters. And then uh, the month of May again, May 9th against Texas, you came within a, a Jeff Burrows home run from a no hitter. So just a one hitter on that one home run. What do you remember about that game? Just that, that I think he hit the home run in about the sixth inning, so there was no drama. And uh, thanks to uh, uh, you reminded me that I I walked uh, three guys, I guess. So 
something spectacular. It may even be, uh, may have even been a close game. So I was more worried about winning the game than than I was uh, pitching some kind of of gem. And but when it was done, it was you know something to be proud of. In those days, honestly, you as a starting pitcher, you weren't too proud if you and. The way I looked at it, my job was to pitch nine innings. If I got into the ninth, that was okay. If I pitched eight innings only, it was passable, like a B plus. If it was seven innings, it was probably a C. If it was under seven innings, it wasn't um, it wasn't something to be proud of. So, uh, you know, you, f- you sort of feel like you let everybody down if you pitch just six innings. So it's a little different. <laughs> now, kind of remind us what you threw then. How fast did you throw, and where did you sit at and top at, and then what pitches did you th- you know, did you throw back then? Well, first of all, I don't think they had speed guns. <laughs> uh, so I threw really hard, 99 to 102. <laughs> um, no, actually, I think one time they in the Arlington Stadium, they did have a speed gun registering on the scoreboard, but I never would look. I was, and I finally asked a coach after an inning, uh, so how hard was I throwing? Did I, you know, I finally got the guts to ask him. It seemed, honestly, it seemed unseemly to ask about your personal performance. And, you know, in those days, you didn't raise your hands when you struck somebody out or you if you hit a home run, you put your head down and jog the bases. And it wasn't like today's world where athletes uh, have to have a style. In fact, if you had a style, it was um, kind of embarrassing. Uh, although, if, if you'll allow me to digress, I'll tell you a story about Ernie Banks when I was a rookie. And he sat by me on the bus one time, and... I, that alone was a huge compliment because as a rookie you're kind of an outcast and um, you weren't accepted. Like nowadays they try to make the kids feel accepted, but in those days you had to earn your way in. But Ernie sat beside me and he says, what kind of player do you want to rem- be remembered as? And I said, well, I want to be respected as a teammate. I want to do my job. And... Uh, help the team. And he says, ah, come on. He says, that's Billy Williams. You want to be like Willie Mays, don't you? (laughs) And I said, well, okay, I see what you mean. You mean with his hat falling off when he hits a triple? Yeah, like that. He says, you got to have some pizzazz. you got to have pizzazz. (laughs) And so that was my first inkling that, you know, style maybe was interesting. And of course, Ernie Banks, he had his style, and he, he lived it. But for Jim Colborn, he couldn't do that. So uh, what was I talking about? Oh, how just, did that relate to? <laughs> just how fast you threw or whatever, you know? Oh, so, so exactly. So the fact that I'd look at how hard I threw, that seemed unseemly. And... Uh, you wouldn't do that. But nevertheless, I had to ask a coach, and he said, oh, you threw him pretty hard. Yeah. And I finally said, was I over 90? And he goes, yeah. 
yeah, you were, you know, but to this day, I think he was just saying that <laughs> to make me feel good. And so probably I threw 88 to 91, something like that, <laughs> what would be considered a slightly below average fastball today. Well, but definitely below average. Yeah, what would be way above average is the innings. So 314 and a third in 1973, 22 complete games. Now, this is kind of a deep question here, but, I mean, obviously you've been a pitching coach and a manager and a scout, so you probably have an opinion. So now, first of all, how are you able to do that without breaking down? And second of all, why can't the guys today throw those kind of innings anymore? Well, honestly, I think it my uh... – my theory on that is that it has to do with the this, this shape of the strike zone. Um, and the difference was that the strike zone was, slight, that it was slightly higher. You could get, once in a while, you could get a, a tall strike called up and in. And uh, so what had happened is the, the batters had to be more aware of that pitch up and in. And... Once they're aware of that, then uh, that makes the low and away pitch a long ways from their eyesight. And it makes it easier to get ground balls and um, get through your innings. Uh, but nowadays it's, a, it's lower and the hitters um, have a smaller area to cover. So I think that it's harder on the pitching. And, and I still, to this day, day if I was ever asked how to change the balance between hitting and pitching that's the that would be my answer just raise the strike zone a little bit um the second thing is the athletes today are tremendously more uh developed and bigger better stronger i think the the knowledge about the hitting technique uh, is taught at a much younger age uh, somehow um knowledge about hitting has been um, understood and passed, and it's easier to pass to young coaches uh, that coach in Little League and high school than than the techniques of pitching, let's say. And I don't think there's a generally understood technique about pitching that there is about hitting. Uh, you'll see guys that talk about pitching and all and, and have their theories, but uh, it's not commonly agreed upon what what are the the basics of pitching and especially if you've had any understanding about the Japanese style or the Asian style over there they do have uh, they they've they all agree on what it takes to be a pitcher in fact I've seen guys I've seen people in the public standing and doing a pitching motion while they're waiting for a train and it's perfect but in the states, um, there isn't the uh, uh, agreed upon concepts uh, like there is in hitting. So that's the other thing that at the time that I was playing, um, it was still done uh, just by individual natural talent. And so I don't think there was many great hitters, and certainly not as strong as there are today. Hmm. Now, do you feel like the, your workload that year in 1973, do you think that you know shortened your career? Would you have pitched longer? Um, well, for some reason, 
I, n- I never had an injury. I well, actually, an in- a, a, a slight strain in my shoulder was what ended my career. But um, had it been in today's world, I would have been on the disabled list, and I'd have uh, rehabbed from it, and probably could have pitched a few more years. Uh, but at that time, I just shut up. I, I had an injury that that I had that actually put me to the bullpen my last year, and I'd have to throw against the bullpen wall to keep my arm loose, uh, just so in case I was called upon to pitch, because I couldn't get loose in time, the, the amount of time they gave you. So there was a strain, and um, uh, that was the only injury. I'd, I'm not sure it came from the workload, um, I don't know. I didn't pitch a lot when I was in college and high school, so I think that allowed my arm to uh, mature without any kind of uh, any kind of minor injuries. And today, I don't know. I it's and I, I've never heard anything that had the answer. You'll you you see the some tests and they say uh, studies that that say kids at a certain age shouldn't throw so much, and that's sort of the way baseball's going, but I'm not sure that's the answer, and baseball doesn't know it either. They still have their theories, but nobody's agreed upon it. Do you think the guy's throwing so hard, does that hurt arms a lot more too? Is it just unnatural to, to go 100% like that? Maybe that's why I only threw 88 to 91. Yeah, right? To protect my, uh I don't know, maybe, because... Uh, you know their arms are longer and there's more leverage. They're they're stronger at a younger age, so the the, the injuries come from the connective tissues, and they don't grow as quickly as muscles can grow if you do weightlifting. So um, maybe there's something to that. Um, you know, and our, our our training mostly had to do with running and stretching and movements and that's sort of what they do in japan as well and and, but the training for athletes now is definitely weight training and so the muscles can get stronger but the connective tissue like ligaments and so forth don't so uh, maybe there's something to that now I wanted to ask you about a few guys that you played with in uh you know with the brewers What, what was it like playing with hank aaron first of all (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm sorry to say this, but and but it, it was a little disappointing, but at the same time it was amazing. Uh, by that time, he he was just playing the last two years of his career, and he'd already broken Babe Ruth's record. So for him, I think it was just uh, kind of a last tour of uh, saying goodbye back to his hometown in, in Milwaukee or his his roots where he started uh, but he didn't train very hard and uh, uh, you could see his talent It's uh, for not even training and uh, I remember one time I told him hey uh, we, were, we were on a road trip and we were in Anaheim and I said to him uh, you know that pitcher told me you were, you were an easy out you know and uh, what? 
and I got his attention immediately. <laughs> he said that? I said, yeah, I know this guy from the minor leagues, and he told me before the game that. And he got up there. He walked from the batter's box to the, I mean, from the on-deck circle of the batter's box with a purpose, and he banged his bat on the home plate, and he hit a home run off this guy. <laughs> and so uh, he came back and kind of looked at me with a knowing glance like that. That young whippersnapper, I show him. So then I thought, oh, okay, this is what I got to do. So the next series was up in Oakland, and I went up. I told him the same thing. You know, this this guy in Oakland said the same thing. What's what's going around? And he kind of looked at me funny this time. <laughs> so he went up and he grounded out to short weekly, and he came back and he said to me, "That kid didn't say that." I asked the catcher. <laughs> he said he's a real modest guy. He'd never say anything like that. <laughs> so, uh, poor Hank, he needed—he just needed a challenge, you know. And it made me realize how important it was to that even a guy with great talent had to have fire in order to compete. But he kind of uh, just went through the motions, I'd say. And the team wasn't good. It wasn't like we were going for the championship or anything. We're just trying to stay above water. Yeah. Uh, another guy was uh, Ken Brett, who also played here in KC. What was Ken like? He was one of my best friends. In fact, I uh, was one of the pallbearers at his funeral. He knew he died from a brain tumor, um, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. And, um, uh, yeah, he was delightful. He... He made my life better, and he had a, a love for life and uh, ability to really be a competitor, a tremendous competitor, but at the same time um, not have baseball be your whole life. So we'd do a lot of things outside the park that were uh, that were just fun. And uh, uh, when we were we were teammates in winter ball in Puerto Rico, and then uh, when we were not teammates, um, uh, well, when we were, were not teammates, we'd end up doing pranks on one another. And uh, like he intercepted my suitcase one time when I came to Anaheim, and he hid it somewhere. So I had to spend the whole series in the same clothes, and he finally gave it back to me after the last game. And I think I snuck into his, his hotel room one time and put things in disarray. He really got mad at me for that one. <laughs> he, he, for a while it was it ceased to be fun. It was more like revenge. Anyway, he was a great guy, and uh, I enjoyed him. And uh, one other guy you'd come over to KC with is uh, Daryl Porter. Yeah. Well, that's that's a sad story. You know, he he was an addict from um, early on, and I think in today's world he probably could have gotten the help he needed. But uh, at the time, he alcohol and you know it, in the in the 70s, marijuana was was pretty uh, prevalent, and uh, on each team there were several guys that that would smoke marijuana and typically you know it wasn't just baseball that was baseball is always a reflection of the culture and 
so there were certain guys that that uh, did it and carried it in their suitcases and if you went into Canada sometimes you got caught because they'd check your baggage but um, guys would stuff towels under the door and open the window so that it wouldn't get in the hallway but you still would walk down the halls and you could smell it coming out there and Daryl was one of them and um, and uh, alcohol was a part of his of his life and you know the ups and downs of baseball you in the evening you get up and typically even if you don't have a a drug like uh, <clears throat> a greenie uh, an amphetamine that some players took in, in the 70s uh, you still are high and so you can't sleep so you'd take something that you'd stay up late at night and then sleep till noon or one o'clock and then do it again and so your life was skewed to different hours <clears throat> and uh, he got caught in in that cycle of having to get up and get down and uh, I remember one time he didn't start and he he told me that he uh, he he in the ninth ninth inning he was called on to pinch it and he came and hit a home run to win the game, and uh, he told me secretly, uh, he said, I smoked a joint in the in the bullpen bathroom <laughs> in the first inning. And then, so I thought, oh, God, don't tell me he's going to combine smoking a joint with performance from now on and start <laughs> doing it before games, but I don't think he did. But we have talks about it all the time, and I try to encourage him and this way and that way, but you know I wasn't a professional and I didn't know how to help him, and uh, eventually it killed him. Yeah, that was sad. He, he was a good competitor though, and a good teammate, and uh, he married a woman that whose birthday was on the same day as mine. Uh, in fact, he was playing in the big leagues, and she was still in high school, so it was a. It was a sad story about the guy, you know. They, uh, anyway. Yeah. Well, you came over with him to the Royals then for Jamie Quirk. This is after 1976, and then Jim Wolford, Bob McClure were in that trade as well. So, how about the moment you found out that news? Where were you at, and who told you that, and what what were your emotions on coming to KC? That was kind of interesting. I was in Venezuela <laughs> playing winter ball, and late at night. Maybe 1 o'clock, I got a call from Tommy Lasorda, who was a coach on our Winter League team, and he told me I'd got traded. And uh, uh, I thought, well, that's wonderful. You know, I, I'll have a new chance. And uh, uh, and I just I thought to myself, well, I'm through messing around. I'm just going to do my part to help the team win a championship. And... And that was um, it was it was a pure feeling, you know, that like I had just one goal, and I went to spring training with the goal, and uh, I think I performed as good as I could have. It was a wonderful group of guys. They, you know, you talk about the marijuana and stuff. That was a they didn't have it. It was a uh, you know that powder blue color. That was sort of how you could uh, describe that team. 
they were powder blue and nice guys and uh and were in it to win championships so uh it was a different experience than the rough and ready Milwaukee Brewers and the blue collar team that they are yeah well, I, so you'd played against the Royals for several years, obviously, and they were coming off the 76 ALCS and that heartbreak. I mean, was that what, what were your thoughts on the Royals as a, when you were playing against them? Tough team to play against. Um, uh, you had, you know, and they always had George Brett in there and a bunch of other good hitters, but the other good hitters were right-handers, and it made it a little easier for me, but... Um, one time, uh, one t- a story about George is uh, uh, Tony Salida, who is uh, a, a Samoan, uh, a, a power hitter, he had a home run off me, and, and then the next game, or the next at bat, I forget, I hit him, and it was by accident, or I was pitching inside tough, and it nailed him. So he was over at first getting sprayed by the trainer, and George was, pawing around in the batter's box and George and I were friends by virtue of uh, his brother Ken and I kind of looked at him jokingly and I said and you're next <laughs> and and uh, all of a sudden he started pawing in that batter's box and got his spikes ready and and even before the umpire said play ball he was already in there ready and then he had a home run off me <laughs> and and so the first baseman was George uh, Scott, George Scott, George Boomer Scott, my first baseman. And he looked at me and just laughed. And after the inning, he says, oh, I feel sorry for you. Because he'd seen what I did, and he thought I was challenging George for real. I was just joking. George didn't know I was joking either, darn it. <laughs> see, that shows you, just like Hank Aaron, you got to give the you give these guys a reason and they'll do their best and so that's why it was always important to keep your head down not have style not given not give the other team a reason to try harder against you yeah it's kind of like Paul Splodorf used to always say during the broadcast you know you don't want to don't want to hit somebody and wake a team up just keep them down don't don't wake them up right see that that was exactly my attitude as well be quiet and uh just kind of do your thing, and before they knew it, you you had them. Yeah, you had a one hitter pitched, and they didn't even know it. <laughs> well, speaking of which, now so 1973 probably your best big league year, but then with the Royals in '77 had to have been a close second. So it's you and Split and Dennis Leonard at the top of that rotation. You win 18 games that year, 239 innings, 3.62 ERA. Now, kind of moment by moment, let's start off in April of that year. You had a you know Royals pitcher of the month. You were four and one with a 2.19. That first month, and then once again, you seem to always pitch well in mid-May. So May 14th of 77 would immortalize you in Royals history. The no-hitter against Texas, you know, you hit Toby Hara in the fifth inning, you walked Jim Sundberg in the sixth, but other than that, no-hitter. So take us back to that night and what you remember all these years later. Well, an interesting thing was that uh, it was a Saturday, and I was asked, to uh, appear at a clinic that one of our teammates had. And it was a hot day, and I, I can remember worrying about, about that because I didn't know if it would mess up my routine or not, but I felt like I had to go make an appearance. But 
the truth was it just relaxed me a little bit and uh, I went to the park and I was the the main thing was there was some kind of intense focus uh, in concentration I was in some kind of a zone remember a line drive uh, it was part of my my routine to go out and just shag ball, balls a little bit in the outfield during batting practice and I walked on the field and a line drive came right at me, one hop, and I just sort of slow motion reached up and caught it. And and that attitude carried into the game. And that's what, as an athlete, that's what they talk about as the zone, where things seem slow and you just are aware of everything happening in a very pleasant way. And so that's the way the game unfolded. And... Um, it's almost as if you can, you know what the, your opponent is thinking and what he what he's capable of doing. And so uh, the first three innings went by, and actually I hadn't been pitching too well. And I remember thinking to myself, ironically, "Well, what do you know? You got three innings here with no hits. Isn't that special?" And uh, then the innings. Then I think in about the fifth or sixth, there was a a pop-up to shallow center, and by that time we had a, I think there may have been two outs, and it was a situation where the center fielder, Al Cowens, probably would have let the ball bounce, make sure of it not becoming an extra base hit, and just catch it on the the first top and hold the guy to a single. But instead, he raced all the way through the ball and caught it about knee high running in, and I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, these guys, are, are they want me to have this no-hitter. And they're in it with me. And, and so that kind of got me inspired. And then it got to the ninth. And I always thought that if I ever got to the ninth inning, I would make sure I'd never, I'd walk a guy before I'd give a hitter a chance to, to have an easy pitch to hit. And uh, the first batter was, a former teammate, Davey May, and he pinch hit as the first hitter of the ninth inning, and uh, I threw him a pitch up and in, and he hit a home run foul. I thought, holy cow, I thought he'd just lay down for me here. What's he doing? Well, he told my wife after the game, he says, if he was going to earn it, he was going to have to earn it. And So I didn't think that way. He should have been nicer to me, but he eventually <laughs> flied out to left. And then the last hitter uh, was Claudel Washington, and he was a low fastball hitter. And the first pitch was a low fastball exactly in his zone that he could have crushed. And instead he just fouled it straight back. And he was right on the pitch. He just missed it. And so that went against my philosophy, but I got away with it. And um, then he grounded out to first, so I was pretty overwhelmed. And I thought it was something really special. Everybody just kind of showered quickly, though, and left the clubhouse. I was ready for some kind of a <laughs> ceremony, but uh, <clears throat> it just uh, it was a wonderful event. Yeah, what does that mean to you today? I mean, because I talked to Steve Busby, and he kind of shakes him off, real modest guy. I mean, does, it, does that mean a lot to you? This, you know, in 2015. Well, he threw he threw two or three of them. Yeah. So it wasn't a big deal, and he was a real good pitcher. For me, it was pretty special. Right. Uh, um, uh, now it's just, 
you know, the stuff in the past kind of fades, and it's something fun to talk about. And, uh, uh, you know, hopefully in your life you learn at some point that your accomplishments aren't what make you special. And um, even though we hang on to those things, uh, and that's part of the problem with growing older is you, you can't accomplish things. And if you're going to feel good about yourself, you've got to find other reasons. And uh, so it's just a fun thing, but um, I know that I can't hang on to that stuff as as being a, a measure of my worth. So that's sort of how I put it in pers- into perspective. Do you have a copy of that game, by the way, on, on video? I can't find it anywhere. I told you it's because they didn't have moving pictures then. <laughs> uh, and certainly they weren't in black, they were in black and white if they did. <laughs> no. uh, actually, the the game wasn't televised, but in the seventh inning, a local station sent a crew down to film it. And at one point, there was a copy of the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, and I I had it on a reel. And I don't even think they have uh, a way to project those things anymore. But I, I don't know where it is. I think somehow it broke or it probably needs to be spliced together if it's even in existence. And But if there is, it, that's where it is. In the archives, in some basement, dusty basement, <laughs> in some television station that has probably moved buildings since two or three times since 1973 <laughs> or 77. So I don't, I don't know what it, where it is. And there's still pictures, but uh, it's just memories now. And there were 29,000 people there, but I, I, I'm sure 45,000 people have told me they were there that night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Uh, that's one of my goals in life is to see a no-hitter someday in person. So, But my sister, who lived in Cleveland, was there. And later in the season, she went to, on a, on a whim, she went to watch a Cleveland and Indian game and saw Dennis Eckersley pitch a no-hitter. <laughs> so she saw two, two games, two no-hitters that year, and the plate umpire was the same. I think it was, might have been Don Dinkinger, but I'm not sure. Oh my gosh! What are the odds of that? One in a trillion? I know it. Yeah. Wow. Now, two other memorable regular season moments. Then, I don't know if you remember this. July fourth of that year, you outdueled Gaylord Perry one nothing. Do you remember that night? Not really. Yeah. Where was it? Was it in Kansas City or was it in? Uh... Uh, yeah, it was KC, I believe. No, I should though, because he was a hated rival. I'm a respected but hated rival. Yeah, he pitched for the Royals too for like two weeks later on. <laughs> he pitched for every team in the big league. <laughs> yeah, right. So, uh, yeah, the, uh, boy, what a character that guy was. You know, he'd he'd openly he'd he'd hold his jacket up while he's sitting on the bench and grab this his Vaseline and pretend to put it on his face. <laughs> but he'd make make it so the other team bench could see him doing it. And he'd, you know, so I don't know how many times he actually threw a spitball, but uh, it was sure in the heads of the hitters. And uh, 
he and he worked so slow and he really had a way of competing that uh, worked for him. He did have a style, but it worked for his on his behalf, not against him. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Now, one last thing that year during the regular season, 18th game, you win that. Uh, the same night the Royals clinch a tie for the division. So, I mean, how special was it for you, you know, making the playoffs that year? Well, you know, that that probably really was special because in my mind I, I was still trying to do something to help the team and always looked at myself as somebody that he had a big game then I could be on the mound and we'd win it. Um, so it probably meant a lot more to, to me than anyone else probably because we had a 12-game lead or something, and nobody really cared about which game it was that we were going to clinch. We <laughs> knew we were going to. But uh, to me, it was uh, really important. And uh, But I think that might have been my last start. I don't know. Yeah, well, you didn't end up pitching in that 77 ALCS. It was heartbreak again for the Royals. How tough was that for you not getting in that series? Very, very tough. And and it kind of um, warped my whole perception of the season and because uh, at the end they took me out of the rotation to um, uh, to try to set it up for the pitchers they wanted against the Yankees and I think they wanted left-handed pitchers and I maybe I, I don't think I pitched against the Yankees that year they had all, a whole bunch of left-handers and I think uh, Whitey Herzog's perception was that uh, I I did better against right-handers, and that's probably true. Um, so I was a little disappointed with that. He did tell me that uh, when I left uh, after that that night that we were eliminated, he did sort of tell me, "Well, I was going to use you for the first game of the World Series against the Dodgers," and and that that kind of made me feel better. Um, so, but I do remember pitching against the Yankees, where they had eight left-handers, and the one right-hander was Thurman Munson. <laughs> and I I pitched uh, eleven innings of no they no score in ten and two-thirds innings, and in the eleventh, uh, Thurman Munson got his fourth single to win the game, and they beat us. One to nothing. So there, there were only eight hit, eight hits, and four of them were by the right-hander, and not, and only four were by the all all eight left-handers after that. But so I kind of was thinking, Whitey, you didn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I love it. Now, so you come back in '78, and he uses you both as a starter and a reliever. So I'm assuming by then the writing might have been on the wall. June 1st, you get traded to the Mariners for Steve Braun. So I mean, were you kind of expecting that? I was real disappointed. That was a great learning experience for me in my life. Very difficult. Um, I I had chosen to. I was a free agent, or at least they were negotiating my contract at that time. And I felt one of the things missing in my life was an idea about business. And so I told my agent that I wanted to negotiate this contract myself. And that was life lesson number one um, and so I, I didn't sign the contract that the, the Royals offered me and it was 
a good one. It was three years, and uh, that would have put me as a royal when they got into the World Series. And I kept thinking, uh, plus the fact that Whitey didn't use me. Then there was something in the paper about in the off season where they felt like they, the Royals had Whitey or somebody announced that, well, we need another pitcher behind uh, behind Leonard and Splitorf, a third pitcher. And I'm thinking, what in the world? I just won 18 games for you. Yeah. And but my record was 18 and 14, and the team's record was more like a winning percentage like Splitorfs or or Larry Gurr's, which was 10 and four, or Splitorfs was. 16 and 4 something like that. So they wanted a guy that was a big winner and not just a guy that was an inning eater. And uh, you know, now I understand it. I'd have been a real valuable fourth or fifth starter and for a championship team they were looking for a, a you know, a higher quality guy. But at the time I took it personally like they didn't uh appreciate the work I'd done. So when the contract came, I just never signed it, and and the general manager told me, he said, all right, I'm going to talk to you like a father, not like your general manager. He said, you need to sign this. And I, can't, I, I, I don't think they could have paid me enough money to that an apology would have made. If they had just said, hey, look, we you did a, a great job for us, and we appreciate that, and uh, here's what we got for you, something like that. It, by that time, my feelings were hurt, and so I understand. You know, that was my life lesson. You know, don't let pride get in the way of of doing what's right. And the agent, if I'd had the agent working for me, who was a good friend, um, probably he would have strongly advised me to take it, and I would have had the three more years, plus that was that arm injury time, and so I couldn't pitch as well as I as I did, and uh, I kept trying to do it, and I just didn't have the life on my pitches, so that marked, that began, marked the beginning of the end, and uh, I learned a lot from it, and was very bitter and upset for years until I finally understood what, what happened. Really? I never knew that. That's very interesting. So, well, well, it is on a personal level for me. And so now I <laughs> now I I when I make decisions, I factor that lesson into them. So, I mean, did, did you like pitching in Kansas City then or I mean, did that kind of ruin your your view for several years? You kind of just were upset with them for years and years? Um, no, I I think I separated it into the, the fun with the teammates, and because really, if you're if you've ever been a teammate of George Brett um, and the attitude he brings to a team, um, you know what fun is. And he he just like his brother Ken had a great sense for how to be a tough competitor that would fight to win, and at the same time understand life and enjoy it and uh he could really uh he had a sense for that so it's a perfect attitude you know you have you have to compete hard but it can't be out of fear of losing and 
that's something those guys had. They weren't afraid to lose. They weren't afraid to uh, put all they had into a game, and that's that, that's a key element in in a good competitor. You can't worry about the outcome. You have to put every everything out there. But if you lose, you just cry or laugh about it or know that you've done your best. And um, so it was wonderful. And and that attitude rubbed off on Freddie Patek, who probably tended to be a little too serious, and uh, and John Mayberry, who wasn't quite sure how to compete, and. Um, Hal McRae, who was probably too tough if he were left to his own devices. And I think overall, George really put a, a, a lot of, you know, you check it out, out, he was always on winning teams. It's like, uh, you know, some of the, the guys now, you see Adrian Beltre eh, sort of had the same attitude that George does. Not as goofy, but, um, you know, there's... Uh, I think it's real important. Well, you finished off uh, 1978 then in the Mariners' rotation, and then re-signed with Seattle prior to '79. But then you'd be released and kind of let you know retire at the end of that spring training. I mean, how tough was that for you to walk away at that point? Well, honestly, in a way, it was a relief because uh, I had that uh, my shoulder still wasn't strong, and I knew I I couldn't compete as well as as I wanted to, although my mind wouldn't let me uh, accept that. And then I think I had a, a leg injury, too, and I'd have, to go to, uh, I'd have to go to spring training early and get in the whirlpool and warm up on my own just so I could take part in the warm-ups. And, and uh, so I, in a way it was a relief because there was a lot of pain and the truth is, competing in a professional sport, you have to compete with pain. And it isn't always physical. It is physical a lot of the times, but it's, it, it, more often it's mental because there's a lot of uncertainties and, uh, you know, that you fail more often than you win. So you have to be willing to take pain and uh it, it just became too much physically and mentally. And uh, plus being on the Mariners team, it, that was a come down from finally being having a chance to play in a championship team and then now just kind of starting at the bottom again like we had with the Brewers. And uh, so it was a little tough. And uh, the drive back from Arizona that day, was a sunny day and I knew I was going home to my wife and kids and in California and so it was a relief but shoot it took years for me to uh, get over not being in baseball and I was so happy to have a chance to be a coach later on and I realized that was where my calling was in baseball yeah it gets in your blood doesn't it well it was in mine yeah and you know right from the beginning when I was uh, grade school, and the teacher asked uh, who wanted to be in the big leagues, and I guess I was listening to my soul when I said I did. Yeah, 
no doubt. Well, uh, a few more questions here for you about your KC days here before we wrap up. I guess uh, I wanted to ask you about a few of your teammates that are unfortunately no longer with us. Uh, talk a little bit about Split, what, what you know, what Paul Splitoff was like. Well, I love Split. I mean, we were when he was an announcer and I was a coach with the Dodgers or Pittsburgh or somebody. Uh, actually, I, was, I coached with the uh, the Rangers too as their bullpen coach. Well, they uh, they had let their pitching people go in uh, in August first of uh, about ni- uh, two thousand seven, I think, or two thousand eight, and they had me come in and be on their staff for, to finish out the season. And I remember a long conversation that Split and I had in our dugout, and I think we were wonderful friends. Uh, but as as we were uh, coming up in the major leagues our careers were always very much the same we had the same records for a while and I always tried to do as well as him and uh, and I admired the way he competed he could be um, self-deprecating and he would say yeah I just stunk yesterday and and I could never say that I always felt like I could never admit that I had a weakness, and I admired Split for that and wished that I could be more like him. And he was always always so relaxed going into games, or it appeared that way, and I admired that about him. But he was a great competitor, too, and a, a real good teammate, a smart guy, and uh, a good person. So he was a real loss. I was, uh, you know, I was crushed uh, when when he left us so he was another important part he he did to the pitching staff what george did for the the team as a whole and it was just his attitude of uh i'm going to put my best out there and then whatever happens happens Uh, that kind of uh was an influence on the rest of the pitching staff Another guy that, that was on that staff for a while from Kansas City. What do you remember about Steve Mangori? <laughs> uh, well, he was a different kind of guy, and he had his own way of competing, and he was a little goofier. But honestly, if you want a, a similar theme, he had the same attitude. You know, I'm going to do my best and have fun during this game, and whatever happens, happens, and... I don't think he ever had too many expectations of himself. Who could with the stuff he had? But he he also was a uh, an efficient competitor, especially against left-handers. And uh, you knew that when he went in the game, you were going to get the best out of him. And more often than not, he ended up being uh, successful. Uh, but as a personality, he was a crazy guy and fun to have as a teammate. Uh, so when I was, um, uh, let's see, so I, when I pitched that no-hitter, then we went to Milwaukee shortly after that, and I had, there was a beat writer in Milwaukee that everyone, his name was Lou Chapman, and everyone always loved to tease Lou Chapman. So Lou talked to me, and I said, Lou, i got to tell you something. I'm going to pitch a no-hitter when I pitch this game against the Brewers. And he, what? He got his pencil ready, and he, he said, what are you saying? You're predicting another no-hitter? 
yes, I'm going to throw a no-hitter against my former teammates, the Brewers. Really? Oh, my God. And so he put that, that was all a joke, and everybody that knew me knew I was joking. But he put it, the big headlines in the <laughs> Milwaukee paper that Colborn predicts no-hitter. So everyone was laughing about it when I went out there. And so when Mingori went out to the bullpen as I was warming up to start the bottom of the first, he went to the mound and stood there while I was taking my warm-up pitches. And as he told the he told the uh, bullpen guys, or I told them, yeah, you guys don't even have to go to the bullpen today. I'm going to do this. <laughs> and so he went to the mound and was sort of checking me out, looking, looking. Finally, he shakes his head, waves to our dugout to call all the other bullpen guys out. <laughs> all right, you guys, we better go out to the bullpen. He ain't going to make it. <laughs> so all, they all came running out, ran past me, and ran out to the right field bullpen in County Stadium. So that was that was the story on Mingori. <laughs> How long till you lost that no-hitter? Was that one of those where the first batter got a hit off of you that night? Probably. <laughs> It was a struggle, believe me. I had I had men on base every inning, and I think I got knocked out in the fifth. <laughs> That's funny. Well, so when you look back to your times in Kansas City, then your, your favorite overall memories of pitching for the Royals? Um, that attitude that that uh, George uh, kind of uh, embodied, you know, of having fun, and then you know you we had success, so. That that makes it all the better, and it was a great team. And Whitey Herzog at the time was he was the best manager I'd seen. I love the way he interacted with the players, and um, uh, uh, it was a good group of boys, and uh, they were respectable and honest. And um, plus, Kansas City as a city was. Uh, clean and fresh. Um, I love the, the downtown area, and uh, it was a great part of my life. So I know you keep in touch with Tom Murphy, you know, because I met you through him, but any other of your old former Royals teammates you talk to anymore or run into at all? Uh, of the Royal teammates? Um, well, when I see every I, – I, I just played golf with John Wathen, and he was another, uh, you know, that's another key element to a championship team is you have to have bench players that are committed to to the game and to the team as a whole and not just, you know, killing time till they get their chance. And they're committed to their role. And both the backup catchers, uh, Buck Martinez and John Wathen, were that way. And so when they'd catch you... Um, you knew they were trying to craft a masterpiece, and uh, you knew they were in it for you. And on the bench, they supported the regulars, and he was that way. Plus, they're intelligent. You know, both those catchers were real smart guys, and they've stayed in baseball and um, uh, and have added to their knowledge to the younger players. So Buck, as an announcer, he's very good. And, um, and Watson also, you know, he's still with the with the Royals in the player development. So those two guys, I, I, whenever I see them, there's a special bond, and 
and Frank White, another quality guy. I see him now and then. So. Yeah, Frank's doing the the politics now. He won uh won the election here, I guess, what six months ago or so. So that's pretty exciting. Gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly what he does. Some sort of city council or something here in Kansas City for Jackson County. So it's pretty. We love him here in KC still. Well, I guess the, the last thing I have for you then is, you know, what would you like to say to all the Royals fans listening right now? Well, uh, I, I think. I hope they understand what it's like to uh, have patience because their patience has been rewarded. Yeah. And, you know, after all the years of uh, being down, they can enjoy looking forward to April again. <clears throat> and I'm sure uh, I, I certainly am. I really respected that team. It's it just like the Giants. It's, it's kind of a... Uh, a revelation. Not, it, it's a revelation to a lot of baseball people to see that attitude and and culture and teamwork wins out over uh, extreme talent and money. And uh, I think that's pretty neat. And I, that's you know here here I am talking about what George Brett brought to the team, but it was all all I talked about was his attitude and not his talent. And uh, uh, I think it's it's showing right now when the, when you have the Giants and the Royals in the World Series, and actually, one of the other strong teams was Baltimore, and they have that attitude too. So, uh, I think it's refreshing to see that come into baseball now. Yeah, it was quite the ride, and. Uh... In October of 2014, I'll definitely never forget that month. The whole city was just bonded. It was an awesome thing to be a part of. Well, that's that's what's so wonderful about professional sports. When it when you do come across an era like that, it's something that you remember all your life. If you're a young kid in uh, September, uh, October of 2014, I guarantee you'll never forget that the rest of your life. And it's something you'll want to bring your kids to in the future and your grandchildren. And so that's one of the nice things about professional sports. <clears throat> Definitely. Well, I'm glad you were able to be a part of that here in Kansas City. And, you know, and thanks so much for all you gave to the Royals. You know, whether you know it or not, you're remembered and talked about still. And, you know, the no-hitter and you won 18 games for us and have – I mean, your your baseball numbers speak for themselves and your life in baseball ever since then. So, you know, it's been a, a pleasure talking to you and hearing the stories, and hopefully we can yeah. stay in well, touch. Like, I have to give you a compliment, too, because <clears throat> uh, it's not too often, it's never, that you'll run into somebody who cares about his interviews enough to research the background of the people that you're talking to to make them sound interesting, even though... The people you're interviewing aren't necessarily the George Bretts of the world, and that's what's interesting is is to hear about the stories of uh, the everyday people. Like I, I've gone to Cooperstown, and uh, you, uh, a player like me, you can't can't come away from Cooperstown without the thought that I was a filler, and if it weren't for me <laughs> having competed. Uh, none of these guys that are famous would have had the the the, uh, the venue to uh, create their great careers. So uh, 
in a way, you're uh, honoring those people that uh, help support the game to make it really famous. Ab- nice going. Absolutely, I love doing it. I love doing it. Hopefully, we'll, you know, see you back in, you know, in KC one of these days for lunch one of these days. Okay, Dave. Good luck to you. Okay, take care. Bye bye.